0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Story Forge podcast, Making Things Matters. I'm Lyle Smith, your host, and I'm sorry to say we've been moving a bit slowly on the new season, but I expect things to pick up quickly. We've shifted gears a bit in this new season and are focusing on, again, this notion of making things matters. Our guests are all people following their passions, their vocations, um, those things they consider important in the world, and all of them are indeed making things. They're making something that they think makes the world a better place. Today, I have a conversation that I recorded several months ago. It's been sitting in my archive, waiting to be edited and published. Uh, I've been busy and lazy and haven't gotten to it, and I apologize for all of that. Uh, And based on my memory of the conversation I had with Jason Steinhauer, I was concerned I'd let it sit too long. But this week, after polishing it up and listening to it several times, I think it's perfect and pertinent, and hopefully you'll think so too. Jason is an historian. He is a professor and an author and a passionate believer in communicating with clarity, accuracy, and specificity. And yet none of that sucks any of the joy out of having a conversation. He is a great interviewer and a great um, storyteller and uh, occasionally frustrating because he likes to spend time thinking about his answers before he answers. So it's, uh, But it was fun. It was a fun conversation with Jason who basically created a field uh, that he calls history communication. Uh, And he adapted that from a discipline in science that uses the same terminology. Uh, I'll let him describe what all of that is himself. But basically, it's a field that entails career historians, authors, researchers, archivists, professors, who commit to communicating about their field of study to a lay audience with all of those things I just mentioned, clarity, specificity, accuracy, and all of that. As in science, there's a natural tendency among those who don't do it for a living to shortcut the message and weigh more heavily on the side of entertainment or memorability in order to have an impact. What Jason's concern was in beginning this endeavor was that in order for history to truly have an impact, in order for us all to understand that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, we need to really know and embrace the accurate history first and understand that most stories, most true stories, are far more complicated than they seem. And when we open those things up to memory and interpretation, we run the risk of misunderstanding the story altogether. And in our modern times, where digital technology enables quicker and quicker communication and values speed over accuracy, or citation, the impact on society can be fundamental. And this is, at least in my interpretation, um, what Jason means when he's talking about being a history communicator. He's made a new field in his area of expertise. He is the head of the LePage Center for History in the Public Interest at Villanova University. He was a scholar at the Library of Congress. He's making a new book, As We Speak. And we'll include a link to his author page in the show notes for you. Uh, Read him, read him often. These are some of the things he values and cares about enough to make something other people can take. And this is another in the series about making things that I hope you'll all enjoy. Here's my conversation with
1: Jason Steiner. So where uh,
0: I I know you're working at Villanova, but, but where are you located right now?
1: in Washington DC. How are things going in Washington DC these days? Well, I mean, you know, it's a hot bit of activity as usual. There's an election, there's demonstrations and protests, there's uh, legislation trying to be passed on Capitol Hill, and then right. of course there's people who live in DC trying to live their lives. So, right. it's a busy time, but for the most part we've stayed indoors and stayed out of trouble and tried to just be safe. Social distance, wear yeah. masks, and uh just protect ourselves as best we can yeah it's a weird time
0: right i mean it's a, it's hard to just think about doing things in a normal way
1: um, yeah, I mean, I think we all you know we <laughs> it's funny people think about history as sort of these being these big extraordinary moments, but there's always the space between those moments, which is just everyday life, and uh, <laughs> that's part of history right. too so yeah. Um, We're sort of living the everyday life aspect of this moment at the same time Some of these more seismic geopolitical things are happening.
0: Right, right. It's 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 interesting to think about it that way. So
1: um, I read I read you're from
0: originally from White Plains. Is that right? Yes, indeed White Plains, New York. So uh, What was it like growing up in White Plains?
1: It was terrific. Uh, White Plains is an amazing place to grow up. The schools were amazing. Uh, They were also incredibly diverse, Um, so growing up um, in high school, we just had a really diverse group of friends from a wide array of backgrounds, Um, and that really, I think, opened my eyes and helped me understand different ways that people move to the world and see the world. Um, You know, like I said, our schools were great, our community was great, um, the city had a lot to offer, and of course, we were right outside Manhattan and all New York City and what it had to offer, so... I really was incredibly fortunate to have such a great childhood and we had, you know, loving parents and, um, you know, a, a roof over our heads and, um, you know, obviously a very strong Jewish faith, right. uh, which was a part of my upbringing. So, um, I've just been, that was a really, really lucky. One of my mentors always says, um, choose your ancestors wisely. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I, uh, I have great ancestors and, and they, they really created, um, a great life and a great home for me
0: fantastic fantastic so you say you say a very strong jewish faith i'm, I'm curious um because you're working at villanova now i know you said we, we just before we started you said you hadn't been there in a few months because of everything that's going on but you know villanova being an augustinian uh catholic university um and you being a professor of a jewish faith uh of the jewish faith faith working there what's your what's your experience in that? Because Villanova is a, 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 a less, in my experience as a Villanovan, uh, it has its, its diverse populations, but overall it's not as diverse as some places.
1: Yeah, I mean, my sister is a professor at Yeshiva University, so we've got the Catholic and the Jewish in uh, you know, the <laughs> same, same house. Um, yeah, you know, for me, it's not a big issue. I mean, it's probably, if my grandmother was still alive, it'd probably be a surprise to her to know that <laughs> her Jewish grandson is working at a Catholic university. But right. to be honest, it, has, it hasn't been, it has been, there hasn't been any issues. Um, you know, Villanova yeah. is a place that has lots of people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different right. religions. And, um, you know, the one thing that, that, this is not necessarily a Villanova thing, but the right. one thing in the past few years that has been Sort of challenging is just the rising anti Semitism that we've seen across the United States and Europe uh, on college campuses and beyond, and right. uh, that's something that has been deeply troubling to me and to others uh, that I've talked to. So, you know, many of us are thinking about ways that we can combat and educate some of the anti Semitism that we're seeing. Um, and again, this is not. Uh, a Villanova thing. It's just sort of a broad cultural thing, unfortunately, that we're reckoning with. Yeah,
0: no, I totally understand that. I mean, I have, we have a a, a couple who's uh, good friends of ours. We're good friends with for years, uh, who are Jewish, and they talk about this a lot with us and how how they see what's going on as being very uh, troubling to them. And and of course, we see it because you know we're walking around in the world with our eyes open, uh, but we don't experience it the same way they do. Um, so it's. Uh, You know, I I think it's kind of helpful to have them, you know, talk to us about it out loud and and say, because it reminds us what's going on in the world.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of anti-Semitism kind of goes under the radar and and is maybe sort of a little bit hard to spot in the wild. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, there there are some deeply embedded anti-Semitic tropes that sort of have been repeated so often now that sometimes we don't even blink when we hear them. so I think part of what we try to do as educators and people who are familiar with these things is is just try to call attention to them when we hear them and see them and, and help people recognize that things that they're hearing may be problematic or things mm-hmm. that they're repeating might be problematic. And I've actually had that experience recently where someone uh, cited something that had sort of circulated through the QAnon channels, and yeah. you know, I said to this person, there's actually a sort of a deeply rooted anti-Semitic trope behind this. It was something to do with like drinking blood of, and, and blood libel stuff, you know, some of that horrible anti-Semitism <sighs> that's, that came out of England and Europe right. and still circulating eight to 900 years later. <laughs> um, but the, per- the person wa- was not aware that, that where that came from, right. and, that it had those resonances. And so even just by calling attention to it, the person said, oh, wow, I, I didn't even realize that that, had a potential anti-Semitic implication. Thanks for right. pointing that out. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is just really sort of subtle and and sort of pernicious in its in its deviousness. And so that's that's been troubling to me in the past few years. Interesting.
0: So um let me I'll get right to it. Why history? <laughs> I think maybe, maybe some of what we were talking about points, points in that direction between, you know, growing up in a place with great schools and a great family and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you know clearly having an understanding of, of the past and how it affects the present. Um, you know, what drew you to history as your uh, chosen dedication?
1: Well, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. And so this notion of being connected to history and sort of emerging from history has been with me ever since I can remember. You know, I don't even remember when I learned that my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Um, I just sort of always knew it somehow. Um, And of course I didn't actually always know it, but from a time I can remember, from the time I I had consciousness about my identity and who we were as people, that has been part of me. And so I just feel like for me, history has always been deeply personal. It's deeply, understanding the past is deeply embedded in knowing my own sense of self, my own sense of heritage. And I've always found that very powerful. And then obviously, you know, there are thousands and thousands of communities around the world who also feel that way. And um, so I just think that a deeper understanding of the past can really unlock a lot of knowledge and wisdom and understanding and i've seen that happen throughout my career in various ways and in various manifestations right and i think that's what that's what drew me to and i think that's what keeps me involved with it
0: and you're you know uh, you work in a field uh, or or maybe it's fair even to say that you kind of spearhead a concept um called history communications no
1: yeah. And so when I worked at the Library of Congress, I, I had a lot of interaction with science communicators and science communication. Right. And the more I learned about it, the more I sort of started asking myself why history hadn't done the same thing. And so right. back in 2014, 2015 time period, I sort of just on a whim suggested to my colleagues in the profession that we establish something called history communication and train people to be history communicators, especially given all the ways that we communicate today. Right. And um, to my surprise, a few people thought this was a good idea. So over the past <laughs> couple of years, we've been developing curricula and training and doing workshops and sort of building out what we we'll hope will be sort of a, a, an equivalent to what science communication has become over the past generation and a half. Interesting. So what's, the,
0: um, what's your definition of it? Because I've, I've read about it and I've, I've, I've heard um, recordings and, and videos of you speaking. Uh, So I kind of have an idea of what I interpret it to be but but from your perspective, what do you what do you consider? uh, History communications to be for those of us who aren't in uh, you know in the biz
1: Yeah, I mean for me, it's less about having a precise definition because honestly even the term history itself doesn't have a precise definition, nor does right. public history, which is the discipline that I come out of. Public history has been around for 45 years; it still doesn't have a definition. Right. I mean, for me, it's mostly just thinking about how do we best communic- how do we best ethically and effectively communicate historical knowledge in a 21st century digital environment, and sure. I think that's that's something that we continually need to assess and analyze and train for because. The platforms and the communications technologies are just continually evolving, and so right. the way we were communicating history in 2010 is very different from how we're doing it in 2020. Right, and it's actually the subject of this book I'm writing, which is how do you communicate history on the internet and social media? And you know, I think that's that's a skill set that we haven't adequately prepared historians for. Um, that's starting to change now, uh, but certainly in 2015 there were no classes on how to do, you know good history on Twitter or how to do good history on YouTube in five years, we've made a lot of progress in in getting people to think about that more seriously, but we still have a ways to go. And, you know, every couple of years there's going to be new things. So, um, so for me, that's what it's about. It's sort of how do we effectively and ethically communicate historical knowledge in the 21st century digital environment?
0: Right. I actually, it's funny. I actually drew a little picture for my question. I don't know if you can see that it's history and communications on opposite sides of a teeter totter um kind of achieving balance between you know and because i've been thinking a lot about this too not just history but you you talk about f- uh fake history and fake news and and how it seems to me we talk a lot about sometimes how science gets ahead of the law or science gets ahead of um you know you know our moral understanding of how to how to deal with science um but i think science or you know the technology of communications is kind of ahead of our understanding of history and news even at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the parallels between history and science should be taken with great care because they are very different fields and professions. Yeah. You know, I think science communication is an inspiration for history communication, but it's right. it's not an exact para- parallel.
0: No, but um, I yes, I agree, but what what I meant was uh like in science they talk about oh yeah, we're 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 you know uh technologically able to clone something maybe eventually a human um but you know the ethics and the law and everything else has to kind of catch up with an understanding of what our ability is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should right um so in communications and an understanding of history and news uh just because you can put the accelerator down on on sending you know this thing i know out to millions and millions of people doesn't mean you should
1: yeah and i think i think part of this is actually a last mile problem and it's something i've been thinking a lot about through the lepage center right because there's so many people in sort of intellectual circles who are thinking and writing about this stuff Mm -hmm. but then how do you get it to the people who need it how do you get it to the students inside the classrooms in philadelphia school district or to you know community colleges in iowa and wyoming and missouri and Those are the folks that we want to be reaching with some of the stuff. We want to be helping people understand and develop their media literacy skills. So when they see historical information online, they know how to evaluate it for its authoritativeness and its trustworthiness. And then we also want to be working with people who are interested in this area, whether it be communications, history, news, media, whatever, you know, how to really think about. Effectively and ethically communicating what they learn or what they know through these various channels And you know in Washington and DC even in Philadelphia There's whole think tanks organized around these ideas and there's lots of smart people engaging in debates among each other Right, you know, how do you get it out? How do you how do you really make an impact across a broader public and populace? In various communities. That's sort of the thing that I think about a lot.
0: Right. You know, one of one of the early interviews I did in this project was was with um, Susan Kent at the University of Colorado, wrote a book about uh, the 1918 flu pandemic. And um, one of the reasons I was looking for a historian to talk to about. um, About that and what's going on right now uh, is because it was hard to find any real. You know, there's only a couple of volumes that were written about it with any kind of depth and nothing really timely, nothing really in that time or of that time. Uh, And she told me, you know, it was funny because at that time, you know, there was basically nothing of any substance was written about it for 60 years or so after it happened. And, um, you know, so, you know, time, you know, uh, on one hand, they say, uh, you know, journalism is history's first draft. uh, And I'll ask you how you feel about that thought. Um, and on the other hand, it takes time to sort of understand an event or, uh, or a condition of a time or, or something like that. Um, you know, what do you think about that?
1: Well, um, I mean, there's a lot there to dig into. I think you know, sometimes... <laughs> Too, I might've
0: taken a big bite. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, that's all good. Sometimes, uh, sometimes you don't know that something is going to be an important event when you're living through it. Right. Right. And so, I, and I think that's that's sort of one distinction of our current period, right? We're we're very much in a moment where we instantly document everything we're doing because we we think and feel like it's going to be important for future generations. Right. Um, but of course, we don't know if it will or not. We don't even know how long human beings will be around on this planet. It's true um, at the rate we're at the rate we're going. <laughs> um, so um, you know, I, I that's again a product of the communications environment and technologies that we have today. And um, so I think there's really some seismic differences between 1918 and 2020, just in terms of how we understand ourselves and how we experience, you know, a, a global pandemic because of the communications technologies and ability to sort of document everything um, that we have. I actually have a friend who's a scholar who works on higher education in the early 20th century, and she had remarked to me early on in the pandemic that she was having trouble finding any sources about how colleges and universities dealt with the 1918 pandemic. They just didn't really seem to exist. Um, And so, of course, today there's now thousands of projects across colleges and universities that are documenting how professors and students and staff are Dealing with COVID in real time, so you know, in some senses, we're we're sort of learning from history in that sense by plugging in a research hole for a future scholar that we ourselves have recognized to be the case here. Um, But you know, the analogies that we choose oftentimes also say a lot about us, right? And so there have been other pandemics. There have been other pandemics since 1918. There've been other flu pandemics in '57 and '68 that killed millions of people. And then of course there's been yellow fever and, Mm -hmm. and um, you know, all the kinds of other terrible diseases that have struck human civilization over time. So I think it's also kind of interesting and revealing that 1918 is getting so much attention and so much focus Um, right now. I think there are political reasons for that. I think there are also sort of archival reasons for that. Right. Um, And um, so the analogies that we choose to sort of, Sort of make sense of our own time can also reveal things about us uh, More than they reveal about 1918 itself.
0: Yeah, I mean one of my reasons I was so interested in 1918 is is I remember the first time I heard about it years ago uh, when I was a kid and kind of not understanding what it was and um, My grandmother had uh, was a little girl at the time and her uh, her grandmother ran a, a boarding house in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and she used to send her out to uh, some of the houses that were quarantined in the neighborhood with, you know, a, a bucket of soup or, a, um, you know, some food uh, from the store or whatever. So, you know, because they couldn't get out. And from the time she was, um, from that time forward, she was petrified of catching the flu. So that was just something in my own personal um, memory of understanding of what this was. Um, so when this emerged as, you know, I, the first significant, uh, you know, certainly national, uh, health crisis here, you know, more or less since then, I guess, I mean, I mean, I mean, you could you could argue, you know, polio and like you said, 57, the flu and that kind of stuff, but the 1918 was so big and so deadly, at least for a stretch of time. Um, that, you know, and maybe this is, this is what you say. It's, it's my personal connection. And and my choice to, to think of that, uh, is because it was the biggest and because it was, you know, it seemed like the most connected, I don't know, for whatever, for my own personal experience.
1: Yeah. You know, I would challenge you a little bit there again, to sort of think about why we choose certain analogies. Right. I mean, for some people... The AIDS, the AIDS crisis during the 1980s and early 1990s was a major, major public health emergency in the United States, where a lot of good people died, uh, and the United States government, according to some, did not do enough to protect, you know, um, gay men and others who were contracting AIDS by the, right. the thousands every year. Right. And so, you know, for for certain communities in the United States, um, COVID is bringing up memories of the 1980s, not 1918. Well,
0: that's, that's absolutely true. And I think you're, you're right on that too. I mean, I I would say the one difference, um, and, and maybe, you know, maybe my memory of this is it has some holes in it because the early days of of the AIDS uh, crisis, you know, we didn't understand everything about how it was transmitted, but eventually we became, you know, fairly, uh, no, you know what, you're right. We didn't know. And there was a lot of, a lot of sort of fear about, you know, everything from doorknobs to toilet seats. So it was, um, yeah no i think <laughs> I think you 're right on the mark there that 's funny uh, so that's again history's an interesting thing because it takes a little bit of uh, distance um, to understand these things
1: yeah, and we also have to recognize the agendas that we bring to any conversation, including among historians and you know right. and myself included you know. Um, and so that's why, I was, you know, these analogies that we make are not neutral. It's not like we can just take 1918 and put it next to 2020 and say, oh, look here, this proves XYZ. History doesn't work that way. Right. Um, and, um, you know, there are a lot of things about 1918 that are completely irrelevant to sure. 2020. Um, and that's not necessarily a story you see in the news a lot because the news tends to want to draw on analogies and find similarities but history is as much about difference as it is about similarity right and so you know this is part of that sort of media literacy history communication framework that we're trying to build is to help people just be smarter consumers of historical information when they find it and encounter it so um
0: and what about that idea that thought that that um you know journalism is the history's first draft uh, you know what do you think about that uh,
1: I don't think much of it to be honest I,
0: <laughs> I was wondering from your perspective
1: <laughs> you know, uh, journalism and reporting is a primary source right and so when historians are doing their work we rely on newspapers a lot to as right. primary sources to understand what may or may not have been happening in a given moment and how people felt about it um, but uh, there's a difference between being a primary source and being a first draft of history. Right. I don't really even know what first draft of history means. To me, that's like the first draft of a history book that doesn't end up getting published. Um, right. So, um, <laughs> right. You, know, you know, newspapers are primary sources. Letters and documents are primary sources. In the 21st century, tweets and Facebook posts are primary source documents. Right. So all those things are the ingredients from which we will create future histories. Right interesting
0: um so yeah and I, in the news business it's funny because i remember i i i actually watched a video of yours uh i don't know when it was made it might be old but uh you where you were talking about newspapers and the um uh jefferson adams election and how, how what newspapers were like in those days and how they were leveraged to you know as basically an arm of the campaign i guess. Um, Compared to now, where there's this, um, you know, v- you know, vision of you know journalistic integrity and purity and all that other stuff, uh, which you know may or may not be true in any given moment. So, so your first, your primary source in the newspapers, even you know, you have a whole generation uh, or more of William Randolph Hearst papers, where you know it's like the the line from the movie. Uh, if the headline's big enough, it makes the news big enough.
1: Yeah. Newspapers are 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 products of a particular time and place and and made by particular people. And, and those people have agendas, whether it's commercial or professional or editorial, um, and, and they, they emerge from different contexts. And so, you know, to really, again, sort of have historical literacy around these things and understand primary sources, you have to not only be able to read them, but also read against them. So read against the grain of the newspaper and see what is it not reporting? What is is it leaving out? What slant does it have? Why is this person, you know, what was the policies or agendas or uh, predilections of the particular publisher or the particular editor? And, you know, all those things matter when you're trying to piece together these histories and these stories. Um, And objectivity, you know, is is a human, it's a human creation born out of a particular place in time. The sort of professionalism of the... The the professionalization of the journalism industry and uh, sort of emerging in the 19th century and into the 20th century, you know, printed pamphlets and newspapers were not always objective. They may not stay always objective. In fact, you could argue that some of them today are not objective. Um, So again, understanding objectivity as sort of a historical creation that emerges at a particular time and place and that it's static and evolving and not sort of fixed. Those are all, again, elements of sort of doing good history.
0: Yeah, I I heard somebody talking about they were were being critical of a news organization as having an agenda um and i i I thought because i remember growing up and my dad used to commute into new york city every day and he'd he'd get the the morning papers and he'd get the afternoon papers back when they still do the afternoon papers and so we had five six newspapers a day to, to skim through in my house and so that was you know just part of what we did and we knew we we knew we understood that every paper had a different Bias to it. Um, You know the times uh, had a bias towards (laughs) Text is what I used to think of as a kid because there was so much of it, but uh, you know sort of an editorial um, lean to the left the uh, You know the the tabloids the post and the daily news had different biases towards what they were doing But I think you know And and I wonder if uh, how this impacts your work when you look at these things because some some Um, I think there's a difference between an agenda, having an agenda and having a bias. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. And, um, again, you just have to sort of be able to do your research and understand, um, Within what context a newspaper is operating, you know, I think the New York Times is still a very very good paper and still a a reputable paper for its news reporting Right, but obviously its editorial page is different than the news reporting pages Uh, sports page is different from its arts page and so um, You know that sort of that sort of level of discernment and and media literacy is important, And it's not something that we've done a great job of uh, inculcating in all of our students and, and citizens across the United States and around the world. So, you know, I think we're one positive thing that maybe has come out of the past few years has been this renewed interest and focus on media literacy. Right. Um, and that's something that I've been involved with um, a bit over the past few years through my work. And, um, you know, we we need it.
0: We need no, it for I all think-
1: segments of our population and we need to fund it. We need to find ways to make sure it doesn't just stay, you know, among conversations like this, but gets out to actual people who would benefit from it.
0: Yeah, I mean, and we've gotten to a point now and I, I run into people like this uh, here in and around Florida uh, who have very strong opinions about the content of the headline, for example. Um, and we're to a point where they, you know, they're, they're almost blinded to, uh, understanding what an article means or what a news story means, um, because they have a preconceived notion about what they believe and that, that go, that'll go into sort of the fake news and the, 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 um, acceleration of, of, um, distribution of this through, through digital means and all that. But, you know, I mean, how do you, how do you fight that?
1: Well, I think, you know, one one thing to point out is that people have always had strong opinions. So the fact that people have strong opinions in 2020 is not necessarily an historical anomaly. Um, and, and also, you know, as you said earlier, newspapers in the 19th century and even, you know, pamphlets and newspapers in the 18th century right. were very ideological. And so sure. people, you know, voting blocks and political parties and supporters of political parties would line up behind newspapers and sort of believe what they said and not believe what other papers said particularly right. in the run-up to the civil war you know you had newspapers that were you know very very sort of democratic uh capital d democratic because democratic party was a southern uh, sympathetic party uh pro slaveholding mm-hmm. holding party at that time and papers that were capital R republican and you know depending on what side you were on with the sort of sectional divisions of the united states you would just sort of get your news and your information from one source mm-hmm. um so, I think um, some of this is not necessarily unique to 2020, um, but you know, all this stuff is wrapped together. We we are we are in a moment of sort of really deep partisanship uh, in the United States. Um, you know, um, wings of the parties, Democrat and Republican, who are pretty entrenched mm-hmm. and don't have a lot of incentive to negotiate with each other. All that often because the sort of media eco- ecosystem and voting populations don't really reward it right um, and so you know you oftentimes have the fringes of the parties who are really controlling the media narrative and also controlling how the party communicates about itself and how it votes on Capitol Hill because it sort of creates this feedback cycle you know we, we take a hard line in Congress we then blast it out through our media channels whether it be conservative media or liberal media yeah. and then the diehards in our party Tell us that we've done the right thing, so that just sort of recreates the whole cycle. Right. Um, So I think um, when it comes to politics, at least, and how news and headlines intersect with politics, you know, it'd be interesting to think about how we can incentivize politicians to cooperate across the aisle, and as opposed to having rewarding them for being sort of ideological stalwarts who refuse to budge on any issues.
0: True. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think that's what I don't know when it happened, but somewhere along the line, uh, the idea of compromise became a dirty word, you know, and, um, it, it's, you know, I forget what poly it might've been Tip O'Neill or somebody called politics, the art of compromise. And it's, um, it's necessary to get anything done in government and policy. Um, and to throw that out, I think, is, is you know, a baby with the bathwater moment.
1: And it's important to remember that compromise has been a staple of American history, but has not always had positive effects. So, for example, oh. from 1787 until 1860, there basically there was a massive compromise on slavery. Right. And, you know, that... That was horrible. I mean, it yeah. led, led to millions of people being enslaved and, and people dying and being tortured and families yeah. being separated and, um, you know, it, building an economy on the backs and labor of enslaved peoples. But that was the compromise, quote unquote, that was made right. to sort of hold the union together and to appease southern slaveholding states and to maintain right. the union. And leading up to the Civil War, you know, there was a lot of anger in northern cities and southern cities that uh, you know, that sort of arrangement, that compromise that had sort of existed for, what about 70, 80, 90 years um, was being, you know, discarded in favor of the liberation of African-American peoples. So, yeah. you know, compromise is not always a positive thing. Right. Um, right. But um, but certainly in the past, you know, since the 1990s, um, you know, with, with Newt Gingrich and the conservative takeover of the House that happened, and there's, there's been sort of this escalating battle on Capitol Hill and between the ideological wings of the party Um, And I think it has made it increasingly difficult in the past 30 years to really see compromise as a winning strategy both as an elected official and for activists in each party and I think what you're seeing now in the 2016 uh, 2020 election with President Trump is a manifestation of that because he's basically just doubling down Mm. on sort of the hardline ideological right wing as opposed to trying to find ways to reach to the center or reach across to the left, his his electoral strategy seems to be: I'm just going to be as hard wing ideological as I can be, and hope that this forty percent right. of people in the United States carries me to electoral victory. And in some ways, he's a, you know, he's sort of the ultimate manifestation of a of a certain brand of politics that that reemerged in the 1990s and hasn't left us.
0: <laughs> it's interesting to hear you say that, um, which brings me to the you know the word we hear brandished around an awful lot lately is fake, right? Fake news. Uh, uh, you write about fake history. Um, it seems to me, um, you know, that um, largely that's just a way of somebody saying, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't believe it. I don't agree with it. So I'm just going to call it fake. Um, on the other hand, fake news as a real honest, basis in in true history in misinformation campaigns that are that are no that are nothing new they've been around for you know generations um spreading false news in in some sort of a way that makes it look like it's uh legitimate
1: this term fake news i think has sort of jumped the shark i'm not sure people really know what it means anymore, right? Yeah, it was a buzzword in 2016 and 2017 around the election and subsequently after the election and I think it was Many ways used to sort of justify or explain how someone like president trump could have been elected I think there were a lot of news organizations that were befuddled by that outcome and so In the immediate short term they sort of looked back and said oh It must have been all these fake news websites popping up. That must have been the reason he got elected." Right. Um, so, you know, I think in some measures, I'm not sure this term "fake news" or even the term "fake history" really does us too much service anymore. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, that said, during the you know 2010s and leading up to the 2016 election, there were like websites that popped up that purported to be bona fide news websites that were that were not, and they right. were just run run by people in their garages, and they put up. Stories that had no basis in truth, and those stories wound up circulating and making those people a fair amount of money and ad revenue so I mean right. that was you know it was a phenomenon to sort of again it's really was more of a media literacy question because you know people are allowed to put up whatever websites they want um, to a, you know to a degree of course right. like, it's really sort of offensive and um, you know and most people just didn 't have the media literacy to understand that what they were seeing was was not a bona fide news source um or as you said earlier maybe they did know and just didn't care um so i think you know this this sort of media literacy moment that we're in has i think emerged out of that fake news quote-unquote fake news phenomenon and i think it's also honestly a little bit of boundary policing by professional journalists right i mean professional journalism has been an endangered species in the last 10 years with the rise of the internet the business models are still terrible. A lot of papers are cutting back or some are even closing. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, these these phony newspapers are popping up online, uh, you know, and and journalists are saying, wait a second. You know, if you're going to get your news some, from somewhere, get it from us. Don't get it from random so-and-so in Los Angeles who's right. put up a, you know, a fake news website and is putting out stories that we worked hard to research and report. And they're just taking them and changing the headlines and reposting them and getting thousands of clicks. So, you know, I think there were issues of business model there. There's interest, you know, there's interest of boundary policing and sort of turfiness there and and it all sort of manifested itself, I think, during that 2016, 2017 period. I think we're sort of a little bit more removed from that. We have a little bit distance from it. We can really see this now as more of a, a media literacy question and how do we get people to evaluate information that they see online with some sort of critical skepticism. I I hope that's
0: the case. And I I think, cause I mean, cause there is, you know, there's uh, not to harp on the idea of fake news, but there's, there's different sort of levels of what people mean by that, you know, and there's like, you know, I don't, I don't believe it. So it's fake. There's, um, yeah, somebody put up a site to be clickbait and try and get, get more, get some revenue out of it, which is, you know, that's been going on since the, the internet, you know, started advertising um, and then there's actual, you know, uh, disin- active disinformation campaigns by bad actors around the world, um, which have a certain amount of impact. But you know, I, and what I tell people all the time is, this, it's sort of like learning what a phishing scam is in in email. It's like if you if you're aware that oh that didn't clearly did not come from somebody I know, or it just kind of looks like it came from somebody I know, don't click on that attachment. Um, you know, my mother, on the other hand, is likely to click on it um, because it looks like something that came from somebody she knows. And so it's kind of dangerous that way. and I think I think the news angle like that um, you know is like that too. And then just it occurred to me, there's this other thing that you hear about I haven't heard about it lately too much, but they called it citizen journalists, right? Where these people just kind of write their stories and put them out there on their website and you know, expect people to read it the same way they read the Washington Post, um, but they don't follow any kind of journalistic um, protocols. You know, you know. I I learned how to how to write for a newspaper by writing for a newspaper and having an editor who made me write it a certain way, and uh, and follow. You know, you have to have X, at least one named source or two sources to report any fact. Blah blah blah. And uh, citizen journalists don't have that.
1: Agreed. I think this is, There's a, again, this is a sort of a question of boundary policing and professionalization, mm-hmm. right? And right. these professions like journalism, like history, like science have put a lot of effort into um, their standards, their best practices. You mm-hmm. know, they have editorial review. They have fact checking. They have all these elements that go into making a story. And... Um, And so then there emerged in the 2010s, or even before that, to be honest, um, this phenomenon of people sort of short-circuiting that entire process and just putting stuff up online. Right. And so the professionals have struck back and have said, listen, there's more to journalism than just putting up a story online. Like, there's the editing, there's the writing, there's the fact-checking, there's the source reporting, there's the interviewing, you know, all that stuff is important. Right. And not only is it important, but it also needs to be compensated. Right, and that's that's the challenge that organizations, news organizations, are facing now. Not necessarily the New York Times or Washington Post, but smaller organizations. You know, the local papers in Orlando and in Iowa and mm-hmm. in California. Even, um, you know, are people willing to pay for the same information they can get for free if they know how much effort and resources it took to create the story?
0: Right. And, right, and that's, that's the same as a similar argument they make in, in, um, you know, in, in, in any product really in, in food, uh, you know, restaurant restaurateurs make this kind of, kind of argument too, is like, if you knew how much it costs to produce that vegetable and that meat and that meal, um, you would be more willing to pay, you know, what it, what it's actually worth as opposed to, or that shirt or that shoe or that shoelace or whatever, um, you know, and I don't know, we, we've, we've been living on a, um, a mentality, a marked markdown mentality here in this country for an awful long time. Um, so, uh, I wonder what's, what you do to, to sort of reroute those rails, you know?
1: It's a tough question. And I think newspapers have been struggling with this for 20 years, and so have historians, to be honest. I mean, that's, again, part of this question about historical literacy and media literacy. You know, for a historian to write a book, it could take six or seven years. Yeah. But then once the book is out, you know, anyone can take the information and put it up online. And and, yeah, so... So so, how is that supposed to work? How is that fair? Does the person who did the research and wrote the book get compensated, or does the person who puts it up on a blog and gets tens of thousands of views from it because they got to put good clickbait headline on it? Right. Does that person get the reward and so uh, the same dynamics apply I think to journalism. you know uh, uh, organization works hard to report a story and they put it out there, and then other outlets just grab it and put it on their websites or people put it on their blogs or they put right. it on Twitter and and sort of they get either the ad revenue or they get the sort of um you know cultural relevance boost that comes from going viral or whatever it is mm. and um you know so i think there's really at the heart of some of these questions are really you know issues around business models and fair compensation and who gets the credit for what and you know whether the whether the process gets rewarded not just the end product
0: right well I it's think, the same it's the same kind of argument uh that's been made about the music industry and and the music industry hasn't solved it yet either. Uh, and technology has derailed their efforts to, to solve it several and at several key crossroads along the way. Um, so, I mean, let me ask you, should, should we have an expectation of the general public, uh, to read history and to understand it and to get it right?
1: Well, I think we should always have that expectation, but we, may not. we shouldn't, we shouldn't necessarily be surprised when it's not met. Yeah. Um, you know, the reality is when you talk to people, uh, especially in the United States right now, uh, people are dealing with COVID. They're working mm-hmm. one or two jobs. Uh, they may be unemployed and trying to find work. They're trying to put food on the table for their okay. families. Um, and there's oftentimes just not a lot of space in the schedule to read a 400 page book by an academic historian. Right. Um, And, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's reality for many people. There are a lot of people who are interested in history, but they're not going to have the time or energy or the finances to go out and seek it. Um, you know, they're not going to spend $70 on an academic textbook. No, Um, true. And especially when, you know, $70 might get them food for a week for their family. So again, some of this comes back to business models. And I, and I think right um the academia and um not just in history but other fields as well have been slow to reckon with this uh and figure out what is the best path moving forward if if you want to reach a broader audience now for some academics they see themselves as being in conversation with other academics and that's what they want and that's how they want to stay and that's fine i don't have any problem with that no um but, you know, if people are concerned about doing history in, in, in public right. and reaching various publics um, who have different varying interests and different varying literacy levels, uh, that requires a different brand of history communication. And so, you know, I'm very interested in working with people over the next few years to sort of figure that out and, again, solve that last mile problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, how do we the last get it mile? to the
1: people who need it? You know,
0: right? No, exactly right. And that last mile problem is a significant one. I mean, when you're and because because then you're 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 battling, you know, like um, like newspapers morphed into radio and to then TV. Now TV is doing battle with the entertainment industry, and in seventy five seventy six the TV, um, you know, uh, producers all you know combined the entertainment divisions with the news divisions and blurred the lines even further and it's it's been going that way ever since um but in in your line where you're talking about you know uh being an author of of a book or or all of these authors of books with a lot of you know um expertise and 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 years in in of study in their background um all of a sudden, it gets to be a question of commerce too. So now, you know, uh, will I pick up that four you know four hundred page uh, tome on you know whatever historical event, or will I pick up you know Bill O'Reilly's latest killing someone so called history book?
1: It's a it's a real challenge. It's a yeah. real challenge, and it's not a new challenge. I mean, it's not like no, no academic books by the thousands and tens of thousands <laughs> twenty years ago either. That's yeah, true. Um, but I think it's become a little bit more urgent um, because of the sort of political situation that we're in. And so, I think people have really been making the argument over the past few years that if you want to be an active participant in democracy and you want to help preserve our democracy, you have to engage in history you have to understand how it came you know where it came from how it emerged what the dynamics are at play and um but um but a lot of people are not going to take the time to read uh, a whole library of books on democracy so there have to be other ways to instill that information and education in people and some of that is happening you know through social media and through youtube but i think there's still A ways more that we can go and that's part of the challenge of history communication in this next decade. I think
0: Right Right, and I I think you're right. I think I think one of the I'll ask you one one thing that just comes to mind is this sort of ongoing um, Attack on you know, the 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 most conservative among us um, Use the word elite uh, or the word "smart" with a certain amount of, you know, derisive uh, tone dripping from their mouths, um, and I, I, you know, I don't understand that myself. I think I think everybody, anybody, wherever you are, you know, should be happy to learn more about anything they can learn more about. Um, but there seems to be sort of an ongoing battle against uh, even the concept of being um, smart. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's your perspective on that
1: there's been a concerted attack against intellectualism and academia particularly intellectualism and academia that's perceived to be sort of leftist or legal, yeah. uh or progressive and, and that's been going on I mean that's been going on for decades so th- I mean I wouldn't give much credence to that stuff that's that's a sort of Premeditated, concerted um, line of attack that conservatives and conservative activists have lobbied against academic institutions and and progressives right. um, for decades. Um, it's calculated. It's it's purposeful. And to be honest, most of it is 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 sort of cooked up in dc think tanks where half the people went to harvard and the other half went to yale so right
0: they're, they're really, that's true <laughs> they're really
1: you know not there's no sort of sincerity or, or genuineness to it i don't think i think it's, right. it's just something that they found plays well with a certain ideological or activist base um and you know again it sort of taps into these larger sort of cultural battles and cultural fault lines that that we have in the united states between you know different classes of people and and different coasts and different privileges and you know people who have the privilege to go to college and pursue you know liberal arts studies versus people who you know don't have those means and go to community college or go to uh, work in in um, blue collar trades. Right. And you know there there's th- those those wedges have been purposefully um, divided and and squeezed over the decades by certain political actors who seek to. Um, you know, achieve particular agendas or, or certain political aims. So I think, again, this is a sort of a media literacy question, sort of being able to understand the agendas at work with some of right. those lines of attack and also recognize that the people making these attacks are themselves elites and intellectuals.
0: Right. Well, it's, you know, it's funny because I, I think back and one of, you know, many, but, you know, one of the best political conversations I ever had in my life Uh, My dad and I were traveling in scotland. We were playing golf in st. Andrews and we went to the pub afterwards We met up with our caddies None of whom had advanced degrees in anything other than reading greens Um, We had a tremendous uh, A tremendous and challenging Political discussion about american politics with these scottish caddies in this pub So, you know, you talk about um, media literacy um, these guys paid attention to what was going on in their world, you know, they could talk economics. It was great Um, and I I always feel a little sad that I I don't see that more of that um In some places here
1: One thing I hear from people repeatedly Who are sort of out there in the world doing work outside of the academy is mm-hmm. We have much more in common across this country than we than we have that separates us mm-hmm. um, but you know the 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 way our elections are and the way our politics are you know it's it, there's a lot of emphasis on the divisions and the and the stark contrasts between you know the left and the right or progressives right. or conservatives or you know this policy agenda versus that policy agenda um so again it sort of comes back to that conversation we were talking about earlier you know right. i think that we 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 can we start to build in incentive models in politics, in, in publishing, in news media, in academia, in other places right. for compromise? Because there is a lot of space for that. There's a lot of space for us to come together around things that we all, or most of us, uh, want to see happen. Um, but a lot of this noise gets in the way. Um, yeah. And um, so, you know, when, uh, I think once we get past COVID, know are there ways that we can get people from different walks of life and different generations and different ethnicities and religions and and backgrounds and universities can we can we find ways to to sort of get together and 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 just talk more right Uh, off off twitter and you know off social media and and in person and uh, and i think there are some good efforts out there that are trying to do that obviously with COVID, it's difficult but um you know i think I think in the United States, I think you, you will find that if you live in Florida and you travel to Washington State and you sit down at a local bar there, you can also have a really good informed conversation with somebody.
0: Oh, I've had good conversations. Yeah, that that one was just sort of striking to me is that, you know, because you, you get and it's the preconceived notions, too. I mean, it's 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 hard sometimes to drop um, what you thought you knew. You know, there's a, there's a phrase I picked up somewhere from some movie where they said, be careful what you think you know about someone because you're probably wrong. And if you can go into a conversation with someone, even if somebody angry, uh, with that kind of a perspective, uh, sometimes it can, it can surprise you. So what are you working on now? You said you're working on a book.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, working on a book project. Uh, supposed to turn in the manuscript in December, but that probably won't happen. So I'll probably push it back to <laughs> January or February. But um, working on a book about how history gets communicated on the internet, and uh, hopefully it'll come out uh, in the fall of uh, 2021.
0: Excellent, excellent. Do you have a title yet, or is it still in the works?
1: Still in the works. Yeah. Uh, working titles that we've come up with so far, we haven't really liked. So
0: okay, fair enough. Fair enough um you know I, I don't worry about the deadlines i i as a writer i know i like to say i love deadlines i love the whooshing sound they make as they fly over my head
1: yeah i mean obviously covid and research libraries being closed has put a damper on some things but yeah it'll get tough. done eventually and then it's um, i'm excited for when it'll come out next year and I, and I hope it'll be of interest to people
0: well i'm looking forward to it i will you have at least one one uh one buyer out here so um
1: thanks Which so will, much of course mostly benefit the publisher not me. That, <laughs> that, that again goes back to the business models
0: but that's how the music business works too yeah i know well jason thanks so much for your time i really appreciate it uh and your perspective it's it's been really helpful to me
1: well i appreciate that and uh i will uh let's uh plan to stay in touch i'll uh, let you know as the book kind of com- becomes a reality and uh I'd love hopefully that. you know one of these days we'll all be able to travel again so if you find yourself up in Wayne or if I find myself down in Florida uh, you know we should let each other know.
0: Absolutely I'd love that. Take care. Bye bye. And that's my conversation with Jason Steinauer historian um, really only because I think history is important and history matters uh, and without an understanding of history we have no hope of understanding our future. Hope you enjoyed it. Stay safe out there. If you find yourself enjoying the Story Forge podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps others find the show and hopefully enjoy it as much as you do. All recording, editing, and executive producing tasks are handled by yours truly, Miles Smith. This podcast would not be possible without the sincerely excellent help of our friend and associate Sergei, who produces numerous podcasts, including the truly excellent The Guest in the House. The music on the podcast is provided by Johnny Nardone and, and the Joe Trio, lights of the dying And if you'd like to send us questions, or feedback, or suggestions for other subjects or guests. You can reach us through the storyforge website. That's the storyforge, all words separated by icons. Or you can email us.